Well, we had a little bit of a hiatus, but we are back. School year gets a little busy. I'm sure most of you can relate, but now we're in the summer, so hopefully Steve and I can sit down with some more great people like today's guest, Chip Staley. Chip just finished a great career in the Indian Prairie 204 School District in Illinois, most recently at Nequa Valley High School. We had a great conversation with Chip today. We talked about, of course, the band. We talked about the wind ensemble versus the symphonic band, the state of education, its current state and its state to come, and the perks of living without a TV. We hope you enjoy episode number five of Bandmasters with Chip Staley. Why do we do it? Is it it a, uh, for some people, a self-fulfilling type deal? Or, I mean, for most people, I hope we do it because it's good for the students, right? You know, to give them all these different opportunities and, and, and try to bring new things up and... I know for some people they try to top themselves. I mean, was that, I'm assuming with you, it was it was a student thing, right? Like, here's this cool new opportunity, let's go for it. Yeah, I think that describes a lot of what has happened in, in 204. If you look at the genesis of it, it was a, a consolidation of a elementary district, a couple of elementary districts in this area in the 70s. And I think 72. And then what happened was, uh, as those kids that were in the elementary schools out in what was very rural, uh, Will County, DeKalb County, Mm -hmm. just our little 47 acres coming from I-80 down to 111th Street, basically. Um, The only reason I know that is on my first day on the job, they took us on a bus tour. They could fit all of the new employees on a bus comfortably <laughs> for the entire district. Wow. And uh, so uh, Jerry McLean was the deputy superintendent. He, he did the tour. And uh, maybe it's 45 square miles, but I, I just remember it was, it was a good hour bus ride just sure. showing us the perimeter. And basically it was the only notable feature of the entire district was the mall. And uh, when I came here in 85, they had had the high school for 10 years. So it was the 10th year of Wabonsi Valley. Sure. And uh, Wabonsi Valley opened as uh, junior high, high school. And then gradually as the numbers grew, it was actually pretty well planned. But um, well, we uh, when I first came here, it was um, just trying to manage the growth uh, and fortunately or unfortunately the growth that they had predicted was stalled out didn't okay. really didn't really happen until 1988 but in the meantime um, people were were looking at what the community needed and what the students needed um, so when I came here it was a perfect opportunity to um, build a program in that there really hadn't been a lot established. There weren't great traditions. I know in talking to uh, Greg Ben, Ken Snook, uh, Ted Liga, all of those guys have sort of a background in a tradition. Um, there's a tradition at the school. Uh, in in uh, Ken's case, not a tradition that he wanted to continue, you know, but mm-hmm. we really had nothing completely established. Kids were used to sort of a 
freestyle way of doing business. And um, so when I came, it was a culture shock for everybody. <laughs> because the first order of business, as anybody will tell you, is to define the terms of our agreement to work together. And uh, the kids had their idea of what it should be, and I had mine. The, the best case um, was, or the thing to establish that we had very different ideas of the way the program would go, and I, I really think that's useful, Sure. was the percussionists, um, they had the idea, because it had been permitted, that they weren't required for the first 20 minutes of the rehearsal, so they would go have breakfast. And they decided that that would be what they would do when I came on board. And I know Ken Snook talks about how he had one kid drop out every day for the first 60 days of school. I can't even fathom that. (laughs) Uh, I had it all happen in the first, the second day, um, because, um, the, I, I heard about this because I wondered where the percussionists were because just didn't take in attendance just to manage you know, sure. who's in the class. They weren't there, and everybody said, they'll be here, they'll be along shortly, and sure enough, they, they came in. And uh, it wasn't their fault, but we had a talk. Yeah. Uh, the next day, uh, they did the same thing, and uh, I put the kids on hold. I don't remember what it was, and I just stood by the entrance. And as they came in, I, I handed them each a drop slip. Um, I said, I, I understand that you've had a different way of doing business, but if you feel like you don't need to be here for, for the first 20 minutes, then I think it's not, probably not going to work out. It's not a good, it's not a good arrangement. And it's actually quite calm and sure. peaceable. So six people immediately dropped. And then, uh, so were you without a percussion section? No, there were plenty of people holding sticks. Okay. And, uh, so I don't know the quality. I just knew that if they didn't come to class, that was going to be a problem. Yeah. And, and if everybody, and if they didn't see that there needed to be a little bit of change of culture that we're here to actually do something, then we were going to have a problem. So that's a long-winded way of saying that uh, I think what I was able to do, because there were so few parameters for the kids was to establish them right away and uh it's interesting because when you say we're doing things that are best for kids what actually what they think is best for them and what we think we need to come to terms with that sure Um, i have a very different view or at least i had a very different view of what was best for them they thought it was best that they would come in and make a decision whether they wanted to participate I felt that it was best that they make that decision before they came in. And so just the very basic understanding of what our contract is with each other uh, took about three years <laughs> at least to develop just to get them not to come in. Well, actually, it happened quicker than that. But one of the things they would ask is, do we have band today? That was a constant question when I first got there. Sure. Do we have band today? And this was a class that met every day? It met every day. And so what I found out was the routine was that the kids would come in and argue that they had a really hard physics test or they had some something coming up. Could they have a study hall? And um, so that was a legitimate question because the, the director would allow... Um, or at least that's what they told me. Maybe they were pulling my leg sure. and, um, or thought maybe I would buy that. It's hard to know, but it seemed like they actually had that expectation that, um, 
I had to have them pull out their schedule and look at it and tell me if they had band today. What period is that? Oh, it's first period. What does it say on your schedule? It says band. Well, I assume then <laughs> we have band. Playing. So, and I became rather fanatical about playing every day, even if it didn't make sense, a shortened sure. period or whatever. And just to make sure they knew that when they came in, they had to have an instrument with them. And uh, I continued that for about 30 years that they always <laughs> <laughs> Seemed to work out for you. Yeah, it worked out. Well, it's such a, I, I was always annoyed by it, and I get it, but yeah, we'd have a concert, and then the next day the kids would come in. Do we need our instruments? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't even mind that question. It was, do we yeah. have band? I mean, yeah. at least well, I got to get know. that, though. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> so can I, I, I'd like to follow up. Um, and you kind of took us right there. So you're you're finishing now 30, 30 years in 204. Uh, and I think, at least for me, I, I think of your program and the district and how huge it is and how accomplished it is. Um, and you're taking us back to the very beginning. Did you have... Did you have a set vision for what the program was going to look like? I, I, you talked a little bit about the growth. Did you anticipate it becoming as big as it did? Um, and could you talk to us a little bit about the challenges you already have about setting the tone? Uh, what, what did that look like on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of difficulties with kids, parents, creating a culture uh, in those early years? Yeah, that's a, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> I, I think... I came from Blue Island, which was an awesome place to, to teach. I loved teaching there. But it was a high school district, and when I uh, left for a year to get my master's, I became a little bit more aware of a larger responsibility that I might want to undertake. Um, actually, Charlie Leonard sat me in the office and uh, said, So, you just want to be a band director? Is that all? And I thought, yeah, actually, that's that would be great. Uh, you know, being a band director would be awesome. But what he did is he planted the seed because of all of the uh, courses they take in curriculum and everything that you take in curriculum and everything else that, you know, we had a larger responsibility. You need to have a larger vision than just what the band was. So I, I credit him for the idea that took me to District 204, which was that we're all connected and that whatever the program is, if it's going to serve the kids best, it needed to be one that was articulated from the very beginning, from sure. kindergarten. Not that I would be the one to lead that. That was not necessarily my goal. I didn't really have that, but I felt prepared if I were asked to do that, that I'd be ready. So when I came out here and it was as uh, humble a beginning as you can have, that was perfect because uh, it, it basically allowed me to um, find out what it is that I wanted to have happen. Um, everything that, any initiative that I wanted to undertake, if you took care of it and you followed through, there was a chance that it would actually happen. Not necessarily because of support, but because there was so little uh, structure that if you put any structure in, uh, we all want structure, so sure. we'll all gravitate towards that. So basically, my idea in coming here was that I would have the potential of creating a, an experience for the kids that was um, comprehensive and sequential so that when they got to the high school, they would have some skills that would give them a lot of um, 
give the teacher a lot more flexibility in what you could actually do. Um, when I say that, I think the kids are malleable, and I, I, I think that they'll do whatever you want. Uh, but if they don't have the skill, they're sort of limited in what you can want. Mm-hmm. So I think um, it's one thing to want to do Lincolnshire Posey, but it's another that have the kids that can make sense of it. Yeah. And uh, you can be a great teacher, but if they haven't had good instruction, it's just not appropriate to put something like that in front of them. Do you do version A or version B? And, yeah. you know. That's a moot point. What do you got? An alto clarinet? I didn't even have an alto clarinet. (laughs) One of my early experiences with uh, administration, my good friend Tom Gibbs was the principal at that time, and they had no understanding of what instrumentation was. So uh, I went to contests because that's what you do, and that's how you develop anything. You have to learn. You have to learn what the standard is, and you, you know, I was young and. Those were established, and it was the best way to for me to figure out which end was up. And one of the judges was puzzled at one of my students in the sight reading room because the sight reading required chimes, and the student had no idea how to play the chimes. That was a great story to take back to my principal because we couldn't get any money mm-hmm. for anything. And I said, well, if we're going to move forward and this is the kind of professional growth activity that I think I need and the kids can learn a little bit about what the standard is by hearing other bands and hearing the judges comments uh, it's rather embarrassing if one of the things that's holding them back is they don't actually have experience with the equipment that they're expected to play oh you know and that really was the beginning of uh, the administration funding our uh, our program and giving us things that we needed. Mm-hmm. So what about, what about from the kids perspective? Was there a, was there a moment that you felt where you had them hooked and they're kind of a defining moment where, okay, what I, what I'm trying to accomplish here is working and they're on board with me. I, that's a great question because uh, I think for young directors, you're thinking that there's going to be an epiphany, yeah. like there's going to be a moment. And for some people there, probably is. For me, it's more of a, um, a process-oriented thing that the kids have taught me, um, where my own ambition uh, interferes sometimes with the, the process for them, um, or my lack of success as a professional, you know, whatever, like not uh, having your recording accepted for uh, Midwest or, you know, those kinds of hurdles as a professional that you want to cross or and Eisenhower High School um, just we were limited in what we were able to play I have a memory of not being a very good teacher you know just not being successful but in the kids minds uh, they make a personal connection with you that lasts forever sure and so when I left uh, Eisenhower High School I mean those kids still stay in touch and uh, they came to the last concert and their memory of it is very different than uh, the band director's memory you know their their memory is it was a special time it was a unique and impactful time in their lives and it was for for me too but uh, I think I didn't learn to value that until later in my career I, I tied too much of 
my self-worth or my idea of my success as a teacher in the product. And um, only later, I would say, after maybe 12 years of teaching, did I come to find out that it was best to have special musical moments every day and not to hold back, not to reserve any kind of um, not looking for that time when my students have an epiphany, not looking for that time where I feel like I've accomplished something, but more um, what's in their folder right now that is going to help them become better musicians. And that goes back to what's best for kids, you know. Sure. Uh, you put in a framework where they have capabilities where they can make music, you, you're doing what's best for kids. If you put in a framework that uh, produces the, um, the results that you want, but the kids aren't having a good experience, then I don't think it's worthwhile at all. So what do you think then, as a, as a teacher, you were, I guess, missing in those first few years? You know, what were you uh, not effective on? I, I look at myself, this is... What, year nine, every single year there's that moment of like, I wasn't doing that. You know, there's like nine big things, <laughs> I think. So, you know, anything those first few years that you looked at and you're like, I should have been doing this, this could have been much more effective. Uh, what's great about what's happened in my life is that uh, <laughs> that uh, there's really not a lot of time for, for introspection. It's okay. been... Uh, you're moving forward. So what could I have done differently? Probably everything had, <laughs> had I known what I know now. But the kids will give you the perspective that's great. And you'll hear sure. this from your kids too. Uh, Ten years from now, you'll look back and you'll go, oh, if only I had blah, blah, blah. And I've done that and, and I've, I've played that game. And then you, you talk to the kids that were in the program when you were starting out and you know you could have been better had you been different, <laughs> like a yeah. different person, like the person I am now. And they don't see it that way at all. So I think there's some, um, you have to allow yourself to imagine the possibility that your students are having the very best experience, okay. in spite of the fact that you are not the best teacher. And um, there are days when all of us are not the best teacher. And it's good that the kids are so connected to the music and the experience and you that they forget those things and they move forward with all the great things that happen. I think we should all live our lives the way our students experience our class. You know, you should remember those things which propel you forward and forget everything that held you back. And um, for me, going back, and I, I think one of, the, one of the questions I heard you ask... Um, <coughs> Gosh, maybe it's Greg. Um, what advice would you give yourself? Yeah. Um, man, I don't know how it could have been done differently. Not that I did everything right, but that all of the things that I screwed up were so crucial for my development. Oh, man, there's just a million things. Um, <coughs> I think... Um, I think the the advice I would give myself would be to persevere, um, to continue um, working towards what you think is best for kids, but understand that everyone around you, and this would be good advice for me to, uh, 20 years ago, everyone around you has their view of what's best for kids. 
let's come to an agreement. Let's, let's work all in the same direction. And um, I think I started taking that advice most seriously when I moved to Niqua. Okay. That um, everyone is invested in the success of the students. So therefore, you have to be a champion of anything that is good for students. And that means you start out with your own department, with your choral and your orchestra teachers, that we're all working in the same direction. And you cannot work against each other ever. That never, never can happen. And if I had taken that advice in 19... 92 or 1990 I'm not sure that I was ready for that because I really tried to was trying to establish my own identity and as you know as a new teacher there's so many skills you have to develop in order to be effective um, I'm not sure I could have had that I'm not sure I would have been known how to be supportive I first had to get my own core and my sure. own center and then uh, right after that, I think I started to acknowledge that it would be better if we worked um, in concert, pun intended, uh, together. And that's when we started in 92, we started our PRISM concert, which required us all to work together because it's orchestra band and choir in a, a kaleidoscope-like event, which around here has become quite the thing to yeah. do. So, and that's that's something I've always um, heard about the Indian Prairie you know, School District is that it was you know, very uh, very cohesive. Everything worked well, and and it's one of those things. And not to be disrespectful, I've heard some from some people. It's funny that are outside of the district that they say they don't like that. They don't want to be told how to teach. They and I don't know if they're just not perceiving it correctly. And then you hear some other people, and they say they like that. There's some structure. You know, so I guess I am coming into this wanting to know a little bit more detail about that. Obviously, the 204 music programs work, and they work very, very well. So you talked about coming into uh, Wabanza Uniqua from the start and having a little bit of a vision. You know, what what is that overall vision, just in simple terms of, uh, you know, what's a kid going to get out of being in the 204 music program? Well, we... Stole everything from Wisconsin, Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. That's where I student taught. Okay. Uh, Dave Royal, um, <clears throat> John Becker, Buzz Hofer, Dennis Glocky, a team of uh, educators who were convinced that the only way the kids could be successful in music was to have a dual curriculum. Um, so basically, you have to spend the time working with kids on their own individual skills. And you also have to work on their ability to play within an ensemble. Those are two very different things. And I think um, if you can convince everyone that that's the best way to go, then things, well, we convinced people that that was the way it should go in District 204. The difference with some some places that have that opportunity is they would rather spend the time on other ensembles. So where you could get a lunch kind of configuration like we sure. have, you would rather have jazz ensembles during the lunch time, which makes a lot of sense because uh, what we've given up by doing a dual curriculum is we've given up 
putting everything in the school day. So <laughs> we have jazz is always outside of the school day. Marching band is always outside of the school day. Our symphony orchestra is outside the school day. We've got to spend time on the individual skills and the ensembles. So it just adds a lot to a person's day. Sure. Um, but I think to really summarize, the idea is that every student has a responsibility to the ensemble that is better met if they're given expert instruction on their instrument. Not everybody takes privately, um, and not every student wants to be held accountable for scales, arpeggios, articulation exercises. They just don't necessarily think that that's important. So once it's part of their grade, once it's part of their system, then they they will develop at their own pace. Sure. And uh, But they have an opportunity then. And that means everybody. So with the, like at NIQA, we have eight uh, ensembles. What's great about that is you are able to ability group much differently than you would if you were in a smaller community where you only have two bands. I mean, uh, you can really put people who have very similar skills in the same band and you won't have a lot of people bored or a lot of people struggling. They'll be pretty much at the same level. Um, back to your question about people don't necessarily want to have that kind of structure because they want to teach the way they want to teach. I think there are many instances of very solid structures that teachers teach their own way anyway. Mm. And in our district, you'll find the same thing. I think you can teach the way you want to teach regardless of the structure. Yeah. I don't think there's anybody in our district who is teaching the way that I teach because, or the way that Bill Jastro teaches or the way that uh, Jonathan Loff or uh, Mark Duker or Donnie Devaney. I don't think in the band world, I don't think anybody's trying to do that. And I think that was the the perception I've heard from a lot of people is they they were thinking that it was you know you were literally being told how to teach this how to teach that and I said I, I don't think that's how it is I think it's like a curriculum hit these right. marks hit 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 these um, you know sub goals here and you know but you can do it your way for the most part there there might be a certain way you teach rhythm I understand or certain. Um, you know, vocabulary that you use, but, you know, for the most part, it's hitting the goals, I'm assuming, right? Yeah, I think the people who are most successful in our district are the ones who um, really adapt their style to what the kids need to learn. Sure. Instead of having the kids um, figure them out, Okay. and then maybe they'll get a gift of learning something. I think it's more, we're all, we're all looking at what the kids need, and we'll do whatever it takes to make that happen. Um, there is some truth to the fact that there might be a little bit of um, um, a feeling that you really need to teach the music from uh, the perspective of how the composer wanted the music to sure. be performed. I think there's a lot of integrity in our um, upper ensembles, and I do feel like if if people feel there's any pressure in our district to teach a particular way, it would be that they are expected to teach um, how the music was meant to sound. Uh, also, I think there's probably pressure not to do a lot of uh, arrangements that don't do the original 
okay. justice. I think we we spend a lot of time talking about literature. And if you were a new person coming into our district, you would feel very um, obligated to find great music for the kids. You, In that way, like if you wanted to come in and really um, connect with the kids with popular music, do a little Beyonce and all that other stuff, yeah, you would just... That would not work. Okay. So I'd like to ask you, uh, you have eight ensembles at Niqua. Right. Um, You mentioned Lincolnshire Posey earlier. I think there are are some pieces that we all know, man, it would be great to conduct that Mm -hmm. at some point. Not every one of those eight ensembles is performing Lincolnshire Posey. Are are there pieces that you think uh, have been really valuable to your kids? I'm sure there are. that maybe are a little bit under-recognized uh, or composers that don't go as as played as maybe you think they should? I, I guess hidden gems that, that you found over the years that just maybe don't get the, the light of day that you think they should? At at the level of either your top group all the way through your, your eighth ensemble. I, I think, oh gosh, the light of day, um, I don't know, I think... It'll be fun for me in retirement to get out more okay. and to see what what's going on. Um, I, I think what I found when I was going through literature for Midwest uh, was that my taste and the general taste of what people are buying are a little bit different and that I had the rule from 95 to when we did it in 2009, the percentage of music that I would go through that was quality was pretty was holding pretty fast at two percent so 98 percent of what is published i don't find very worthwhile Mm -hmm. but that's just me so i think you know there i think a lot of the new music is accessible almost on first listening which i think isn't what we really want um, I think accessibility and excitement are okay if there's a depth to it that you can mine. Um, if you're just going to skim the surface and you have a piece that deals with uh, rhythmic intensity and uh, moments of impact, I think I don't I don't like that kind of music because it doesn't sustain. Uh, a conversation in a classroom. What it does is it allows people to be active as players. And, and, and I think for especially some lower level bands who are dealing with just keeping a steady pulse and dealing with technical issues, it might have something that's very attractive. Sure. Um, what I'm getting at is I think the enduring band pieces that everybody mentioned uh, mentions aren't necessarily being performed because people think they're too hard, but you know, they're Frank Erickson pieces, uh, Claire Grunman for younger bands that are dealing with music that's accessible but has so much depth to it. And, uh, you know, uh, like Claude T. Smith putting in a 7 8 bar in the middle of Emperada, you know, it's just a little, little hiccups that make it very interesting mm-hmm. for the. The students, which are not so in your face. So, what is it? What is it that you look for when you say there's, you know, that two percent of music that you really find to be of the highest quality? Uh, you're looking for depth. What What is it? 
specifically, if, if you can, if you can put it, if you can, you know, make it tangible, what are the things that you look for in a piece? Well, I think, uh, timbre and color, um, consistency and, um, the ability of the composer to shift, um, in an unexpected way. So you could be dealing in very deep and dark, rich tones, and then you can either subtly or instantly shift to a brighter quality. Um, you can set up expectations for the listener and then take them down a different path. Those are always interesting to me. Uh, when Timothy Broge came out from New Jersey to write uh, Symphonia number. 18 for us when I was at Aurora. I think that's what it was. And they call it Aurora. He called it Aurora. He is the one that basically got me thinking differently about what kinds of music I should pick because he always had an element of surprise in what he would do. And then an element of something that he thought that the kids would find um, interesting. And that would be like uh, he'd do some power rock thing in the middle of sure. it. But his favorite composer was uh, was Haydn. And the reason he liked Haydn is he would set up um, the expectations of that, um, of his audiences, the aristocracy. And then he would uh, get them all settled in, and then he would take a left turn and be completely amused that they that he had suckered them, you know. And that's what makes his um, music so interesting. I think I'm looking for that. Um, I don't know. Every every composer is a little bit different in the way that they intrigue me. Um, Granger, I think, is great because of the, his use of strophic material as almost an ostinato. So you take Lads of Wamfrey March and you take the same tune over and over. And I've heard that done in such... A boring way because people are following <laughs> yeah. it's 12 minutes of the same tune um, people are following the idea that the the melody has to predominate but for him that's that's the the intriguing thing is that the non-melodic non-melodic elements are the most interesting so that if you are studying Granger and you understand that it's all about how he set the melodies, not necessarily how we frame them, um, then he becomes much more interesting. He, that's a perfect example of a tune that could go bad um, if it's in the wrong hands. Sure. But it has a, a rich life in the classroom because there's so much you can do with it. Uh, Lincoln Sherposy, Sixth Movement, Lost Lady Found. Uh, if you follow the tune with the actual lyrics, they match up perfectly. And it's the only one that I know in, in that series that matches the lyrics perfectly. Mm -hmm. But when you hear the chimes at the end and all that, that's when, you know, the great homecoming in the town is welcoming the lost lady because she's found. That's what happens at the end of that. And he makes that insipid little tune just extraordinary um, by the way that he has taken the colors of the wind band and percussion and illustrated directly the lyric. Um, 
So I guess I'm I'm going off on a no on no a it's it's right. fun uh, watching you talk about this because I a lot of the the people I've talked to um, you know at, at this high level like you they always talk about literature and they say it's one of the most challenging things yes. to pick appropriate literature and um, I always you know bringing myself into it there are pieces that I remember I played in high school and in high school I'm like. Mm. And then 10 years later, I heard it, and now it's my favorite piece. And it's such a, um, sometimes with kids, I think, such a delayed gratification and such a slow reward that, you know, let's get into this piece, let's explore, let's really get into depth. Like you said, maybe it's not a pop piece that they're going to be, it's not accessible right away. But the depth of this, for me, maybe I'm slow, but it took me 10 years to appreciate some pieces fully. You know, so I, I always love hearing about this and just hearing about any literature. Yeah, you know, well, Dr. Bijan uh, helped me uh, a great deal with um, picking things that weren't immediately satisfying for the for the ensemble. He said I had to do Opus Forty Three A. You got to do Schoenberg. You know, um, I said I might. You know, I, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. He yeah. said, No. Well, the only way you're going to learn it is to do it and. I said, well, I'm not sure my students would really... Well, you'll sell them on it, you know. I can't do a good Harry Beechin uh, voice. voice. <laughs> you need to just do it. <laughs> um, and what he, what his point was for me was that it was time for me to learn that piece. Mm-hmm. And he knew that I wouldn't learn it unless I put it in front of the ensemble. Can I get into a little bit about what Dr. Beechin taught me about instrumentation you can tell us whatever you want yeah we're here (laughs) so uh dr bejan was kind enough to come out and work with my band and the conversation turned to the appropriateness of a wind ensemble at the high school level and dr bejan was very honest with me and by that time we'd spent a little bit of time together and it, it was glorious he just he worked with our kids on, um, oh gosh, what was he working on? Probably Enigma variations. And uh, he was just very generous, not only with his time, but with his uh, his willingness to be honest with the ensemble was phenomenal. But what he expressed to me was a frustration with not getting that big symphonic band sound, that I was giving that up by having a wind ensemble. And his his comment to me was, um, when you have a larger ensemble, you can always create a wind ensemble within it. Mm. You expand the dynamic palette of the band exponentially. That he didn't understand why you would want to limit yourself by having a, a smaller ensemble. And he also said, it's much harder to give the perception of in-tuneness because when you have more players, there's a certain amount of averaging that happens. When you have uh, 16 clarinets as opposed to 8, you're going to have a a much uh, better time of it because they will sort of work, tuning will work itself out. What I expressed to him was that I felt like what I was trying to do uh, was train my students to be orchestral players and that they needed to feel more like they were one to a part, except for the woodwinds. 
because of balance issues, it's not possible. And um, so he said, well, I can understand that. Mm -hmm. And I said, I can understand what you're saying. And ultimately, um, I budged on, on it in this respect. He really made me think about what pieces I was programming with the wind ensemble, whether it was the best programming choice. Sure. For instance, should I be doing uh, Alfred Reed, which is really written for um, symphonic band? Maybe, maybe not. But I, I, I was struggling with that. So I struggled with it enough to change the way we set up our bands so that we would have the opportunity to have symphonic band with our best kids. So right now we have the wind ensemble and the wind symphony, our two capstone courses in band, uh, meeting with a common lunch period. And so like some places will have that kind of situation for their marching band, we have it for our symphonic, what we call our wind orchestra. Okay. And... Um, then we're able to program larger works. We did uh, pictures at an exhibition, um, and for our crystal concert at, with our wind orchestra, and that was an arrangement as a as it was scored, you know, a transcription, much more appropriate for a larger group. Um, I heard on your podcast Ted Liga talking about the larger size group was developed. The symphonic band was developed to emulate the orchestra, and since most of the literature um, in before 1950s was written for um, was transcribed from orchestra sure. to band, that it was appropriate to have those large size bands. But for wind ensemble, what's really nice then after my conversation with Dr. Bijan, I was much more careful about my choices for the wind ensemble. While uh, we didn't change entirely to a symphonic band format. I did change in the way I approached the wind ensemble. I was much more uh, respectful mm-hmm. of the symphonic band literature, so as to not play it yeah. <laughs> with the wind ensemble. No, that's very fascinating. That's you know, I, I just haven't thought about that with with my groups. You know, and and I think at some schools too, whether or not it's a wind ensemble, they're calling it a wind ensemble. They're calling it, wind orchestra, wind collective, whatever they're, you know, talking about. But yeah, you look at some of these pieces though. I mean, even old school pieces, um, the whole suite that's originally written for 23 winds though. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've ever heard it, Steve, with 23 winds playing, like it's a completely different piece than with 80 people playing it. So, so that's cool. So I, I think, um, a question I would have, do you think, do you think that uh, each director based on, the the number of kids they're working with the 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 training that their kids have are there times where a wind ensemble is more or less appropriate or the same for a symphonic band where you would encourage a teacher to go one route versus the other or would you advocate regardless of the size of your program uh or the the quality of your program you want to give the kids the opportunity to play in a wind ensemble so that they start to develop their individual skills at a higher level. Part of the, well, the opportunity that I had in coming into uh, tabula rasa, you know, there's the blank canvas, um, was I was able to look at what might work best for our community. Um, this program is a result of just trying to be in tune with 
what can work and mm-hmm. what what's best practice for us. So I've never really gotten into the giving advice to other people on what they should do in their <laughs> own program, only because I don't know their situation. Sure. But if they asked me to come in and see what their situation was, I, I would be happy to be helpful that way. But giving any kind of a um, pronouncement about what's best practice um, related to the size of an ensemble would be disingenuous. I, I don't think... I don't think I would want to be a young director and have the pressure of that kind of advice, um, especially when I was at uh, at uh, Eisenhower High School, that I would have to do it a particular way because I had what I had, and you know, trying to just trying to manage what I had was enough for me. Yeah, and to think I was going to create a particular kind of instrumentation would have been really not effective sure so I, I think it all has to do with what what your community will support in music education and what your goals are as a music educator for me it really boiled down to the fact that we were doing such a uh, good job of preparing students that to give them an experience one to a part seemed like the right thing to do sure because they are ready for it and they're they're eager for it, and they're they're wanting to be heard in, in a way that um, they hadn't been when I first came there. They wanted to hide. They wanted to be a part of the activity, but they didn't really want to be heard. So actually, even when I do clinics, uh, a lot of the groups that I do, I forget that they're not my kids almost instantly. And I, because I don't do it a great deal, I need to learn to say, look, I do... When I ask you to play, it's because I've heard something that I want to hear, mm-hmm. not because you did something wrong. And um, my students want me to ask them to play because they know I, I want to provide a model. And uh, that took a long time to change that way of thinking. And one way to do that is it's just a constant. You're always heard. Um, my students know that I hear everything in the ensemble all the time. And that's not because I set out to do that. It's because it's a natural part of a wind ensemble. We all hear all of the parts all the time. It's not magic that your director can hear you. And um, in our in our program, I think kids have sort of accepted that they're they're going to be helped. That we're, we're you're going to get advice. Um, I like the way that you're articulating that. Uh, could you articulate it like uh, she is doing? Or so, That's great. Um, Dr. Mangini just came out recently to, to our school, and he's talking lately about uh, building and sculpting. He says, are you going to be a builder or are you going to be a sculptor? He said he wants to be a sculptor. Here's here's what the kids are giving him, just how yeah, you described, and here's how he's going to help shape it into what you know, he yeah. wants to hear, what he's you know, envisioning yeah. there. Yeah. So, um, you know, so you go back and, and, and you talked about the going to another school and seeing what they're doing. And, and I think about when I was in my first couple of years and I went out and got some feedback from some competitions and those competitions, whether it be, you know, a ranked festival or the division ranking, uh, I, I think in some points they were helpful and they were also kind of stressful. And I bring that up with you because I've I've heard in the past that, you know, you, you had some very strong uh, opinions about competitions. So, Tell me how you feel about that with with competition and music. Is it healthy? Can it be healthy? Is it more of a hindrance? 
Well, for for young directors especially, there aren't a lot of mechanisms to get to get help. You know, and if you don't know who to call, you go to uh, somebody selected three experts. You get you get good advice. Sure, uh, I think it's uh, it's perfectly acceptable to seek out good uh, objective feedback. I think your kids really rise to that occasion, and it, and it is a very effective tool for. Um, building a program, if I hadn't done competitions, I wouldn't have been able to improve the program because nobody believed me when I said what needed to change until yeah. somebody else said it. I mean, I was hired as the experts, so to speak, but you know, when an expert is in your own district and they're on your payroll and they make recommendations that are expensive, you don't want to hear it. <laughs> so <laughs> you go, you go to, outside experts sure. who, who sort of give you that information. So I told the chime story. I, we wouldn't have been able to get chimes had I not had a concrete example of this is the standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think in that respect, um, contests can be very helpful. Um, there are very few people who are able to balance um, a contest-driven program in a way that the students understand that when they don't do well, it's not a reflection on how, uh, on their self worth. Um, I think that the people that you've been, you've interviewed, uh, Greg Bim, uh, and, uh, Ken Snook, those guys have totally figured out how to use that as a tool, uh, to help the students sort of mark their improvement. Sure. But keep it in a perspective like that. There are few people who can do it. Uh, I am not against competition for other people. I'm against competition for me, mm-hmm. uh, mostly because of where I am in my career. Um, it was very useful until it wasn't, and I was able to I was able to recognize the moment when it wasn't. And it was very. I've had so many great teachers, and some are just natural consequences. Um, I was the Aurora Legion band director, yeah. and um, one of the things they insisted we do was competition when we had to compete against Joliet. Wonderful bands, uh, long tradition, and they really wanted to beat each other. What I learned through that experience was I, I'm just not a good player. I, I don't play that well in that the way people behaved either way, whether you won or lost. I mean, there are only two bands. And and, and so I I watched that as a director, and certainly I wanted to be good at what I was doing, but I found that there were a lot of things that were not related to the music making of the ensemble that entered into it, win or lose. And we did, you know, uh, what I learned from losing was actually um, not that the judges were incorrect, but that was useful. You know, it was useful information. But winning taught me more mm-hmm. uh, of what I didn't want to have happen. And um, that also happened with the state contest with Wabansi Valley. We won the state sweepstakes contest in 1993. And, and I'm telling you, we really needed to in the sense that in, in establishing any kind of credibility with our administration, winning sure. is being the first state contest winner in our school was a big deal until it's no longer a big deal because they've forgotten about it. But uh, what I learned from that experience was that the next year, I think we won it again, there were students 
that were leaving their uh, solo and ensemble experiences crying. I was asking, what? I didn't play well. Well, you know, that happens. But that means that my solo, which is a sweepstakes solo, we won't get those points. So because of me, we may not win. And I was like, yeah, well, we're not doing this anymore. Mm-hmm. So I, we stopped doing that okay. uh, competition for the fact that um, the students reflected to me the way they were engaging in the process was, was high stakes, highly personal, and not constructive. Um, I felt like we could, do, we could do things differently. So we established our own uh, solo and ensemble festival that's uh, more like a master class experience. And then uh, out of the 40-some rooms that, they, that we run, there are about 12 of uh, 12 events that are chosen for an honors recital. And the kids get geared up for that, and that's enough. Um, and that is sort of competitive, and it's competitive to get into any of the ensembles. But to, I think what, to come back to what I, what I think about competition, I think if you have a very, um, you have an idea of what the competition will do in the context of your program and how it will be helpful to you. It's probably a good idea, but I think what we all find ourselves in is once you win, you have to win again. And if you haven't won, you have to win. And that you're really driven by this. I don't think everybody is, but I think some people are driven by winning rather than the process. Mm-hmm. And that's where we can all get distracted. And even if the director is not distracted by that, the students are. And you have to be a master like Greg Bim to be able to uh, let the kids know what perspective is. And, and I heard him discuss how he did that, and yeah. that's just brilliant. But I, I wouldn't have been able to do that when I was young, and I know I didn't do it. And I know I used competition the wrong way. It was to gain credibility with our administration so that we could move forward, which is actually using the students as a, as a means to an end, which is wrong. Yeah. However, like... Was there another earlier, way to do it, though? No, I don't know. You know. And that's why, why would I go back to myself when I was in my 10th year of teaching and give myself advice? Yeah. Because, you know, I was in, I was in it, and I learned from it, and the 30-year, 35-year process worked out. But in the moment, I was learning from uh, how I was misusing competition, if I was misusing it at all. I, I don't think I was smart enough to do what a lot of people do successfully to make competition an integral and important and safe route that motivates kids, gives them a, a bar. I just don't think I was as good at that as I needed to be in order to keep perspective. As a, as a teacher, um, let's say applying for, for something like Midwest, uh, have you ever found, let's say through that application process, that you, uh, in an attempt to, to get accepted to play somewhere, have had to change uh, what, how you program or when during the year you program something and was that in itself, even though Midwest, once you're there, isn't competitive, did you find yourself struggling with that a bit of, okay, well, I'm going to have to change what I do with this group to make this thing happen? W- w- was that tough for you? 
Well, Does that I, make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, when I was a student teacher, uh, the junior high that I was uh, student teaching at was Oconomowoc um, Junior High in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. Dave Royal took his band to play at Midwest. That was my first Midwest experience. I want to tell you, that was, uh, well, it's the first time I ever drove a van into Chicago, so I learned, okay. so that's stressful I learned a lot from that. Yeah. But <laughs> I certainly had nothing to do with the performance, but just hearing uh, the bands that were there, that was a, a formative, uh, just like wake-up call. So like, was that one of your big musical moments? Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, just the the idea that you could play in front of an audience that was critical, that you know, knew a lot more than you, what, what, at that moment, you know, I wouldn't have predicted 15 years later that I would actually be playing there, but it certainly was in my mind. I would love my band to be that good, whatever that good was, and, and it was really good. If I hadn't been exposed to that, you know, we don't, we didn't have the kinds of availability of recordings that you guys do now. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have known how a band could sound, because they are really geared up. Those bands are, you know, they're working so hard. So when I applied in 94, it truly was a professional goal um, to make it. And we just played at um, IMEA, and I had made the mistake of programming Praise Jerusalem with the Wind Ensemble, so I learned from that experience. <laughs> um, and I don't, I don't remember. I, it was a great band, and I think 95 would have been, or 94 might have been the year we should have, you know, performed if you're just talking about the players in, in the ensemble, I don't know that that's true, but like anybody will tell you who applies from Midwest, your best band is what it takes to get accepted. Did I make any changes? Yes, I made changes every day about what the standard was, and that was so valuable to me. Not because I was trying to make a recording for Midwest, but in my mind I'm thinking the band needs to sound this way, the band needs to sound that way. Um, I need to darken up this. I need to give clarity to that. Not for any other reason than um, there's a musical standard out there that I'm not meeting, and I need to I need to work harder to meet it. So when we did not, uh, we were not accepted. I realized that I had a lot more work to do. So I think I became even more detail oriented um, and really focused on what I wanted to have happen. Um, musically, and not just thinking about the mechanics of sure. it and playing a particularly big piece, but I, I wanted to make it that much more musical. My assumption then is that that probably branched out into everything, right? Not just right. Midwest preparation. Hmm. Yeah, I think it. I think we all need to have in our minds a model of what we want our bands to sound like, mm-hmm. because what the kids present to you will not be will be what they present to you. And our job is to, I think I would say uh, sculpting is one part of it, but building an understanding in all the students of what you're sculpting, I would I would do both. I think the okay. students' ownership of that makes your job possible. So as you're doing it, you're trying to get the kids to have ownership for that sound so that it's not completely sculpted by me that it's built by the students and that when they build it, they understand it better. And therefore, the next day when you're working on it, since they're the builders, they know exactly what they need to do to get to where you were the day before so that you have much better retention. So what we're doing is we're formalizing in the program 
an ideal way of approaching music. And that when students enter the, into the rehearsal room, they know what that ideal is because they are committed in their own personal way to it. So I can have my view of it, but unless I'm building an understanding with them about what that idea is, I can't year after year after year after year continue to do the same kind of building. It becomes a what everybody talks about, a rebuilding year. Well, every year is a rebuilding year, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you get to that point faster when you lose your... In my ensembles, it's always at least half the ensemble is seniors, so I always lose at least half the ensemble. <coughs> the way that we're able to recreate musical experiences is by the people taking ownership who are veterans and transferring their love and passion for what we do in that ensemble to their their seatmate, whoever's sitting next to them who's new. You know, bring them in, make them feel comfortable. Here's the way it works, by the way they play and the way they approach, the way they prepare. So for Midwest, what it did is it produced in my mind a very high standard, and it produced in my way of doing business an idea that the students needed to be a little bit better about bringing their A game every day. Because if we were going to always play well, you can't wait, you can't be a gamer mm-hmm. and just wait until the concert and, and play great. You got to do it today would be good. <laughs> you know. Um, so how do I change things because of Midwest? Yeah, well, everything, everything's changed because of Midwest. Um, and I, and not because it necessarily was a goal, but it, w- it made me, it made my process more about um, the daily experience than it was about the product, which is, seems odd because if you're really working on the product, then it doesn't matter about the process. But for me, somehow in this whole deal, I found out that it was more important to to make sure that the kids um, had a good musical experience that they could replicate again and again. Well, you talked about uh, it making you more detail-oriented. What, in what ways uh, would you say it, it, it changed your process of preparation and reflection, um, maybe on a daily basis for rehearsal? Um, and as part of that, can you talk to us maybe about how you, how you prepare a score? Um, I can, and, and you know, here's the one thing that you guys know already. Have you ever repeated a piece? Yeah, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> How many times have you played Longford Legends? I'm a big Longford Legends fan. Okay. But do you notice that your band is better every time you play yeah, it? Yeah. yeah. And I remember having that epiphany, and it's like, you know, the obvious man, of course, because you know. You know. <laughs> um, but I think a lot of young directors are reluctant to repeat things for their students, because they feel like they should be learning more. But I think you, you can learn a great deal by revisiting a piece you absolutely love. Um, the third movement of Lincolnshire Posey, the students are just brilliant the third or fourth time you've done it. You know? And the students are just the same as when the first time you did it. But, um, so as far as my preparation, you asked me earlier, how do I pick music? I have to love the piece and the only way I know that is uh, I've studied the score. I've heard enough recordings of it to where I should be tired of it. 
and I find more magical things. Mm-hmm. I'm always finding new things. Or there are magical moments in it that I could hear that every day for the rest of my life and I'd be a happy person. And it just never gets old. And there, there is a lot of music like that. You could probably name some for yourselves. But um, what I try to gain from my score study is usually looking for those moments, arrival points. And Dennis Glocky from Penn State uses the very simple formula for arrival points. He says, all music is to, at, or from. So you're either going to something, you arrive at it, or you're coming from it. And if you can make those determinations in your score, it will give you direction. And uh, so I try to determine what the direction of the piece is, and, and I'm fully committed to those points. It's very helpful for those that have uh, extended codas at triple forte, uh, prestissimo, you know. So you have an extended prestissimo ending, triple forte, you know, you've arrived for a long time. <laughs> and uh, so you have, to, you have to look at that and wonder if Shostakovich actually meant that. Or if he meant something else, mm-hmm. you know, where is he actually taking us? Because the musicians, he assumes, are smart enough to take us there. Why is he going to write in those kind of details? Because it's obvious when you listen to the harmonic uh, structure and you uh, feel the way the music propels you, you know, but of course it's not obvious. Yeah. And, but he's dead, so we can't ask him. So you have to, <laughs> you have to sort of make decisions. I was thinking of of uh, uh, festive overture when I was talking about that. You know, there's so many big moments sure. in that. How do you... Uh, my kids say pacing, pacing, okay. pacing. Because they have to remind themselves because it's so fun to play that you can arrive and, you know, just basically annihilate your audience. Yeah. And uh, you need to not do that. So um, I look at I look at that first. Um and I love, if I can, to get it copied so that I can use colored markers just because it makes me more efficient with a new piece. I don't do this with pieces that I think I know. I say I think I know because we always learn something new. Um, but I'll write in um, entrances and dynamics. I'll color it so it's easier for me to see while I'm rehearsing. Uh, but those are just uh, road signs. They're not musical indicators. Mm-hmm. So I, I try to make the musical um, decisions first, and then I make sure that I have the mechanics figured out second. And then we, we put it in front of the group. How about in your, in your conducting? Um, I know I've read that you, you've got some pretty strong feelings on gesture and, and how to use it and how not to use it uh, and beating time. So when you talk about giving the kids a clear understanding of what it is that you're looking for is a lot of that. Are you accomplishing it without saying anything? Uh, do you, do you think pretty, pretty methodically about what it is you're showing them before you show it to them? Or does it just kind of happen on the podium? I, I guess the question is, uh, how, how much do you prepare not just your score, but your conducting? I used to, uh, prepare conducting quite a bit, uh, I had a great experience. I got to go to a conducting clinic um, 
in 92. It was the Eastman 40th anniversary of the Wind Ensemble, and Fred Fennell was one of the clinicians, and uh, Hunsberger was there, and they had 18 people that got up in front of the group and did uh, Fanfare for the Common Man, Prague, uh, 1968, you know, who's a, and uh, <clears throat> that was all stuff that I was not going to be performing with my band anytime soon. So um, that was the only time in my professional career other than, you know, when I wasn't a student that I actually practiced conducting, which I'm embarrassed mm-hmm. to admit, but, you know, we all get very busy, so who's yeah. got time for that? So I made time, and that was probably the most pivotal point in my career where I went from uh, um, really just expecting the kids could interpret whatever it was that I was doing, (laughs) good luck, uh, to uh, there really I needed to be a little bit clearer. And the one who helped me, because I needed help desperately, was uh, Steve Squires. Um, So I went to Northern, I I made some uh, jaunts to visit Steve in his office, and he was exceptional at one building confidence when there was none and two helping me understand what I did well so that I could repeat it um, and also economy of gesture and inevitability of the beat those were very important to learn um, so I think what happened after that is if I had a difficult moment I would practice it okay but I was basically fairly confident that what I was doing was a um, direct result of what what I thought I wanted. Sure. Um, so I'm not the best conducting coach, you know, in the sense of here's how you do it. I would be more of what is it that you want to do. Yeah. And then watch you and then see if you're actually expressing that and mm-hmm. try to be helpful that way. But it, my... There are so many people who have been influential. Dennis Glocky, another one. And uh, re- just, you know, the latter part of my career uh, became uh, good friends with Craig Kirchhoff. And he's the one that helped me understand how little we need to dictate the time if we do our job right. Mm-hmm. And um, he did it with some very simple exercises that my students perform marvelously on into my great surprise which meant that i could actually do what he was doing what a what a great concept yeah. but there's an element of one you have to trust yourself that you've done a good job of teaching and inculcating whatever the musical uh, mission is in your in your group uh, but the second thing is and the most important thing is that you trust your students to do it whether you're doing it or not and for those people who wish to be only sculptors that i am the one that is all musical knowledge is all musical knowledge will emanate from me uh, as a conductor. That's my role. Um, that's an uncomfortable place to be, okay. where you're you're releasing to the students some ownership of the musical message that you're going to deliver to an audience. That's um, that's hard for us because we're we're giving up control, and we all know we're all control freaks, and we also know what a huge role we play that our band is going to sound the way it sounds because of us. But how much of that control will you relinquish to your students? And that, that takes, um, 
building a level of respect for your students by allowing them to be successful, to challenge them in a very significant way, and to celebrate when they meet those challenges so that they know that they're safe to do what they think is best. Well, that, and, you know, I, I took a couple of things from what you said there. It's interesting. Because, Steve, we got to sit down with Steve Squires. You were a Steve Squires student. Yeah, he, you know, he, was my band, he was my band director my freshman year of college. And I actually did not reconnect with him again until a couple of months ago. He was uh, a guest clinician at NIU for a festival. And I brought my wind ensemble out. And he worked with them. And I instantly reflected back to 15 years ago and went, gosh, I learned so much from him on a daily basis. <laughs> Well, you know, he's he's one of those that he can hear the grass grow. So um, I love working with Steve for so many reasons. He totally opened up the world of uh, just tuning and um, equal temperament. And mm-hmm. um, it's the idea that students' ears are better than the than the than your tuner, um, which made me pretty much get rid of my tuner. And my bands play better in tune. I mean, we use the tuner um, for reference pitches and for learning the tendency of our instrument. But ultimately, when you're tuning in a band, having a tuner out is probably the least effective way. Mm. You know, unless you want to sound like a piano roll. Yeah. Yeah. How are you going to get the... What, what did he call it when you were in the ensemble? The ping or uh, the... I don't remember. Oh, it's the ring. It's how you can get a chord to ring. You have to, it has to be just tuned. But yeah, Steve is a very unassuming uh, change agent. Agent. Okay. He, he doesn't set out to change anything, but he'll change your life if you let him. Oh, yeah. Because he's just... Uh, he's brilliant at what he does. And... Um, we all could stand to spend more time with them. Well, we can wrap up here soon, but I I really wanted to talk about just education in in, in general, because I think sometimes we get fixated on being a band director Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, we, we always think about the advocacy part, but, but sometimes we don't take a lot of action on it. And, and more so we see some, issues in the news lately with with education and what's happening at sometimes some good things sometimes some bad things is is there anything right now that's i guess scaring you in terms of education whether it be in illinois uh wisconsin the country i mean any any big concerns that you have about education right now well i think for those of us who are committed to education uh, these will be times that we will weather and uh, we'll come out the other side stronger. Uh, but for those people who are on the fence, which would be 80% of people who are in education, you mm-hmm. know, since what is the average um, lifespan of an educator? Five years, yeah. something like that. Um, for those people, that timeline will get even shorter for a while because of the fact that they're going to try to treat all of us the same as um pretty much factory workers if they have their way. Walker in Wisconsin is interested in um, discrediting by changing the uh, licensing procedures so that you literally discrediting the education profession so that anyone can teach. You don't need a teaching degree. Um, What he's doing is he's setting it up so that if anyone can do it, then the salaries can certainly go down because you've increased the 
pool of applicants. And if you're not concerned about education, the quality of the education, getting somebody in front of a group, you can do that, certainly. They've still got people who are willing to work for minimum wage in, in just about any conceivable role, so why couldn't they do that with education? So I think that's a problem that will write itself uh, in five years. So unfortunately, I think they'll have to go down that road until they realize it's the wrong road because, uh, you know, Walker's not educated, so he doesn't believe that an education is valuable. And people are saying, uh, you know, you've got uh, Gates who wasn't traditionally educated, you know, so you don't really need an education. Well, what they've forgotten is that our democracy is founded on education and the baseline of every person being educated enough to make their own decisions about what their political future should be for their country is gone. I mean, they're losing that. We want to have everyone who is well-educated and articulate about the issues of the day and willing to pay their taxes in order to get services from the government that they expect. I mean, those are all things that we in the 50s and 60s and 70s took for granted. But recently, there's this idea that an education is not important because there are a few people that have gone a non-traditional route. Well, I would argue that those people had a public education before they went a non-traditional mm-hmm. route and that it's still necessary. I think we're going to stratify our population into those who can access education and those who can't, and we're going to discover that we need to serve those people who can't access a good education like we used to, where everybody gets the same quality education so that we have an educated um, citizenry that is willing to support those things they believe in because they have a they have opinions that they can articulate and they know the difference between fact and fiction they can create an argument and they can basically state a case and those are things that our citizenry could do but uh, we're moving in a direction where they're thinking we don't need to do that have you considered running for office? <laughs> if I could be half as articulate and eloquent as you are on a good day, man, that would be oh my gosh. amazing. I want to vote for you. Oh, yeah. well, <laughs> it's interesting because of the fact that uh, you, we all see it coming. We all see this uh, disaster coming. And to get back to, you know, for the people who are in, in music, it's going to get worse before it gets better. But for those of us who are just like, you know, I'm sticking with this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna continue in this direction. You're gonna find that the, the market is gonna be surprisingly open, for good people because yeah. people are gonna begin to value something that they've been missing. So well, and that was my fear. I've been talking to Steve about this. You know, my my, my fear was that they were just going to keep combining more and more things. Mm-hmm. You know, pretty soon you're going to be. I know in a lot of the small school districts, there, there are a lot of people where you're... P.E. slash band. P.E. slash band. I mean, not even joking about it. You you know, I know there's some jobs in the past yeah. that we, we've looked at like that. And, and even at the simplest, I know you've got a lot of people that will split band and choir, um, which I don't think is always the worst thing on earth. But when they keep piling things on, you know, you're doing band, you're doing choir, and then you're supervising the lunchroom in addition to your regular duties. Um, and then now they see in some smaller places that you can qualify to assist with math, you know. So so that was my big concern is that, not that it needs to be specialized necessarily, but if we keep 
broadening it so much, you know, where's the value in, in, in music teachers then? You know, if they keep throwing things at us. And I know some friends that I've talked to have had a big concern about that. Yeah. Like, you're the music teacher here, take this, right. take this, well, take you, this. Well, you're describing it perfectly because you're talking about student contact time. Yeah. Not value, but how much can you cover? So you're, mm -hmm. you're basically an activities director. Yeah. And I think we're, uh, we are our own uh, worst enemy when it comes to um, taking on that role where we make it look like what we're doing is an activity. Mm -hmm. And I think all that, we've, well, all that we've talked about literature is where the core of all of anybody who's a new teacher needs to really address. What is it that I'm teaching in my classroom that is giving them um, a musical experience? That's going to be the thing that will um, sustain us as a profession so that they don't look at it as an activity. Sure. They look at it as an essential part of, one, being human, and two, uh, getting a well-rounded, comprehensive public school education. Yeah. Well, and I see, too, though, it's funny because a lot of us were raised on, on quality. You know, everything that we do, we try to do it well. So then when you are put in a position like that, a lot of people are just like, okay, I'm gonna do, I don't want to do it, but I'm going to do it well. And then when you do it well, I'm assuming some administration saying, well, this this looks great. Keep doing it. Keep doing more. You know. So uh, to me, I think that was just kind of a big fear. Yeah, I think the you... overloading of it, and then I think even if you're the strongest person in the world, you know, it's at, at what point do you say like I can't do this? Well, I think you're also describing the squeeze that administrators have with budget. I mean, the yeah. new the new policy of central offices everywhere. Ours is not excluded from this. Is uh, here's the money we have. Do what you can. And then uh, you know the big flap with Atlanta, Georgia. The superintendent is on. She, it's viral what she talked about related to what they had to do. Well, what they what they did is they eliminated. Uh, 16 positions? I don't remember how many positions. But her explanation was, yeah, we, have, we haven't eliminated the programs. We've just, where there were two people, we now have one. Yeah. And that really is what uh, has to change more than the superintendent. You don't fire the superintendent because she's dealing with bad... Sure. Uh, the game is, is completely stacked against her. Um what you do is you start talking about, well, you want these services, which everybody does, and you go to those communities and you say, well, here's how you can pay for them. Nobody's willing to do that. Mm -hmm. Nobody is willing to say, here's what, here's what we uh, are offering, and this is what it costs to offer that. We need to get that money. Well, one, as a teacher, nobody's going to ask you that question. You know, central office doesn't want to know because they've got $300 million coming in, which is, seems like a lot of money, to serve... 27,000 students, which now becomes a lot less money, you know, so how are we, why would we ask for more money when you got so much? Well, the truth is, everybody's got all this amount of money that seems like a big deal if you're talking about a household budget, but when it comes to actually uh, preparing our citizens to be um, responsible in, in what our country is doing, you need to spend the money. Yeah. And, and, but we don't know how much that is because we're not asking that question. So basically what you're describing is a principal is not evil. They're asking you to do more because they want the kids to still have the experience, yeah. but they don't have the money to provide right. it. So they're, they're expecting you to do it. Well, that'll end 
because of what you're describing. Mm-hmm. Not that people will burn out, they'll just find places that aren't. And I think it's the same with the administrators, too. The administrators, I know they don't like telling people. No. I mean, who, who likes that? You know, you, you have to do this for half of the cost Nobody. and half of the staffing. No. Nobody likes that. No. You know. So, well, well, let's end positively then. Yes. Um, I have one, what, I have yeah, one go other ahead, question. Go do you mind? Yeah. You got five extra minutes? Whatever you need. Okay. So, so you, you talked earlier about um, the importance of a dual curriculum where the kids are learning to play really well in an ensemble, but also, and also focusing on, on their individual skills. Um, I'd like to hear, and I'm going to fumble the question a little bit, so I apologize. Uh, I'd like to hear a little bit about how, how you accomplish that, um, in the context of a full group rehearsal, uh, maybe how you utilize sectional time and private instruction, uh, if technology, things like smart music, if that's played a part at all in, in what you do. Um, and, and lastly, I think the, the part I'm most interested in is is your collaborative relationships. I, I, I think you and Bill Jastro mm-hmm. right. are seen as yeah. like the dynamic duo. Um, and I'd like to hear just a little bit about what that relationship has meant for you and your teaching and your kids uh, and in building the program you have at Nequa. It's okay. a loaded question, I know. <laughs> so it might not be five minutes. No, but... it might not be. <laughs> <laughs> um well, the key component to having the dual curriculum came from one that I had a huge, I knew that that was the difference between a great program and a really mediocre program because of what I experienced as a student teacher. So I had that in my mind forever and I couldn't get it to happen, couldn't get it to happen. Finally, I realized that with the change in the schedule, uh, what I was recommending, which was an extended period for lunch so that kids could take... Um, they could take, they didn't have to take a class period for lunch. So you could have an extended class period. Well, if I could butt my band up against this extended class period so that they could have lunch, I could figure out a way for them to have lunch and a, a technique class at the same time. But that would never fly. Nobody wanted to do that. So I went to my colleagues in English and in science, and this was in 1987, uh, and I said, uh, you know what, if we got an extended time, you could have longer laps, which I knew they needed. And you could you could set up a, a reading uh, tutoring session for people. You, you could uh, assign people to that. And they said, great. So they went ahead and they moved that uh, program forward. And uh, so that was great because then they extended it and music wasn't even on the table. So we just, once it was extended, then we mm-hmm. were able to do what we wanted to do. Um, when we opened up then, and then things changed entirely, and then it, we got a full period that got rid of the extended, but then that full period was lunch. But because they were so used to that little extended time, they wanted that flexibility. Lunch was a full period, and you could have 4A, 4B, and then if I could schedule my kids third period and fourth period, they could have lunch fourth period, and then I had the other half of the period. And that's the way we manage that. And then that expanded into all the other lunch periods because we had other bands and orchestras. and mm-hmm. So uh, that worked out pretty well. That's the short story of how that happened. There, I'm sure there's much more to it. But my relationship with Bill Jastro, he's one of the first people I came in contact with, not directly, but indirectly when I came to Illinois from Wisconsin. So in 1981, he had written a book about um, percussion that I found. And so I knew the name as soon as I came down here. When we finally connected, I think, was through IMEA. 
And um, we, uh, he invited me to several different um, clinic sessions with his bands. And uh, so that's how we became acquainted. He's the one that introduced the band in 1994. I knew that he was a spectacular teacher from watching him work and also because uh, student teachers that he had 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 been so successful. So I would always call him when we had an opening and uh, ask him if um, he had anybody he would like to recommend. In the meantime, he was running for IMEA District 9, District 7, whatever, um, president. And I was asked to run against him, which I thought was the funniest thing I'd ever heard. <laughs> so why would I run against somebody I would vote for? I mean, I would only run if I felt I could do a better job. And there's, sure. it's not possible for me to do a better job than Bill Jastro. So we have a long relationship, very uh, collegial. Well, one time in 2003, I called him for a, uh, a recommendation and he wrote back um, what I'd be interested in. Uh, and then he told me his age, uh, percussionist. And I did a little happy dance around my... <laughs> you know. So having working with Bill Jastrow would be a dream come true, but this, his personal s- situation had changed to the point where, since he lived in Naperville and he'd had his kids go through our program, where he felt comfortable with the program, he felt he knew what it was about. We had many opportunities to uh, work together. Uh, he thought maybe... It might work out. And so we were opening our new um, freshman building, and uh, we were able to hire Bill to be in charge of the freshman building, all of the arts there. But he was at the main building while it was we were doing the transition for one year. Maybe it was 2002. I don't know. I get them all mixed up. But um, So we, we are... Um, People said, where did Staley go when Bill took the job? That was the in our profession, where did Staley go? Because in our profession, there's only one, one person who would be the director of bands. Mm-hmm. But in our situation, uh, that would be silly. We've got so many great abilities to utilize for the students that having somebody who had to be in charge of everything was craziness. So... Uh, Bill had his, uh, he was in charge of basically helping with uh, all of the curricular needs of the uh, gold building, which included all the freshmen, and he was phenomenal at that. Writing Our, our curriculum for the freshman uh, band members is probably the best anywhere because of Bill. And, um, you know, Jonathan Loff uh, and the marching band and the jazz ensemble, I mean, we all have our, our things that we are in charge of. And uh, mine being the uh, curricular leader for the bands at the upper level. And um, so Bill and I have um, the luxury of having a mutual admiration society, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and then getting to work together was exactly what it was. We, we got to work together. Um, thrilled to death to have him. Um, and... Yeah, it couldn't be a more positive relationship. It's what you dream about in working with somebody. And, you know, he has become a very close personal friend. And uh, that professional respect, if we could all have that for each other, um, it would be much easier for us to 
establish ourselves as an indispensable part of any uh, school culture. Yeah, it can be uh, it can be an interesting profession sometimes with the competition, and I mean, just amongst band directors themselves, it seems sometimes, which you know, it's not healthy. I know for the kids or just personal well-being, I imagine there. Right. So, well, tell me then, what uh, we, we talked about some negatives in education. What do, what do you think today is just absolutely great, this this time period that we have right now? Um, you know, w- whether it's access that, that students have to education, whether it's the access we have to, to everything that's been done in the past, what's, what's exciting right now? I think uh, what's exciting is the amount of information that's available and the potential for a teacher to tap into just about anything in order to get the kids excited. I think what we are able to do now as teachers is to be a facilitator of that knowledge, you know, to pick and choose because there's too much and and really go deep with our kids. That's really Mm -hmm. exciting. I, I love... The kids think it's hilarious because I'm at least 10 years behind. But, you know, um, <laughs> uh, I love being able to go to YouTube and find whatever I want yeah. now. I mean, yeah. that is incredible. Uh, musical resources are amazing. Smart music is an amazing resource, but it's not the end-all, be-all. I would not choose my program based on what was in smart music. Yeah, uh, Some people are doing that, and I think that's probably not very helpful. But um, who am I to say? If it works for them, that's that's okay. But um, I think it's exciting that we have students that, well, we have a a community that is beginning to realize the power of uh, performing as a musician in developing the the brain. I think that uh, I'm excited about working with Art Speaks 204 uh, because of the conversation that we're causing this community to have about how the arts really benefit students long term that uh, they're really an essential part of a comprehensive education where where can we find information by the way about art speaks 204 is there a website Uh, we're on facebook if you just look at art speaks 204 and then the website is artspeaks 204.org okay and we have videos of people basically talking about how the arts have informed them and made them successful in, in careers other than music. I, I think that is exciting in, in education for musicians. It's where you begin to understand that as much as we love music, we have a responsibility to let people know how music is impactful in something other than an aesthetic way. Um, because people don't understand aesthetics unless they are, they've been impacted mm-hmm. by it. So for the general population, we have to include in our lexicon the kinds of um, stories that basically describe why there's utility to uh, being involved in a very substantial way with music making. And uh, not that that's to the exclusion of it's it's just good for your soul and it, and it makes you learn how to uh, recognize beauty and all the things that... Um, Susan Langer, isn't that who, who wrote the book on aesthetics? I'm trying to remember. Uh, Better you than me. Yeah, it's, it's 30 years ago. But uh, yeah, anyway, I think it, it's very, we're in a, in a place where I think people are going to shift their thinking to really support great things happening for kids at younger ages. 
and that uh, if we can meet that need with experts and not people who are, you know, just play the banjo or something, sure. you know, uh, I think that would be terrific. So I hope I hope everybody hangs on, and that we don't have a, a mass departure from education yeah. of our skilled music people because we really need them. Well, hey, this has been extremely helpful, I think, to us. We love sitting here with you and, and, and people like you, and hopefully people find this very helpful. So we just want to say thank you for that. Uh, I'm not seeing a lot of TVs around here, though. Is no. There, uh, I, I was, we were looking, you know, just for some extra research, and there's a Tribune article, what was it, mid-'90s it looked like, and your TV broke and you never got it fixed. Right. Tell us about that. <laughs> well, I know it's a little bit of a fluff question, but I'm no, legitimately okay. interested yeah. in that. Um, well, 20 years ago, it will be in September of this year. Uh, I didn't remember the date, but when you sent that link to me yeah. to remind me, I went, oh, yeah, I guess it was September 4th. <laughs> um, basically, I think it's probably a moot point now because people don't use TV as much. But, yeah. Uh, one of the, I'll, I'll just say what may be the case for people is not the case for us. And having background noise with uh, television, uh, used to be sort of what it was. You turn the TV on and just leave it, and it's sort of in the background. Sure. Uh, we don't, since we don't have TV, that stopped. And it's nice because uh, where I think people are going, TV is becoming very obsolete now, mm-hmm. is you choose your entertainment, and uh, we just were a little ahead of the curve on that. So it, my boys were unhappy when we first did it, but now, um, you know, they're... They're fine with their development years, yeah. not having yeah. the, uh, not having a TV. I know that Evan, when uh, when he realized we weren't replacing the television, um, said, "Dad, my eyes are sad." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, did you see that? Is a is it a pretty? You know, let's. I mean, we talk about the cell phone culture. I, I went to my daughter's dance recital the other night. And uh, to quote a comedian that I was listening to once, it was funny. Everybody in the audience is looking at the dance recital through their three-and-a-half-inch screen, and, like, the real HD is on stage, you know? Right. So, I mean, what, was that a big thing for you guys, though, or did, did you start to maybe reconnect a little bit more? Did you did you kind of... I, I'm sure you had a great family, but it, did it seem like there was just a little bit more quality time? Yeah, I think that's probably true. It's okay. sort of hard to gauge because we've sort of forgotten what yeah, television yeah. time was like. But, for instance, they... I think it's a matter of the television would sometimes dictate your schedule. Sure. And um, so we no longer had that sort of imperative to... It was no longer law and order o'clock. Right. And and that's that's exactly one of the the (laughs) shows that we used to watch was Law and Order. I love that show. Uh, St. Elsewhere. Yeah, we got to get home before we get fences. Hill Street Blues. I mean, I I can remember that. Those are such oldies, you know. Uh, But, yeah, I think... uh, I think it's just a matter of it, when it's not available, you don't do it. Sure. And now it's the same thing. I mean, if you have to, if you have to look it up, I mean, you got to make the effort to find yeah. something, um, which mo- anybody can do on any device now. Uh, but that's our norm, yeah. you know. So if we want to see something, we can see it. I think some people too. It's a lot of us are just uncomfortable with silence, so we right. bring up that background noise. And that that is true. We we do have silence in our house, and. Um, I have to say that that's I wouldn't want to give that up. Okay. It is interesting when we when we stay in a hotel room, we don't turn on the TV. That I realized we weren't doing that. You know, we just weren't yeah. turning on the TV. Um, and I imagine most people just turn it on. As a matter of fact, many times you go into a hotel room that's already on for you. 
you have to turn it off. But I think it's just a habit yeah. thing, and it's good not to have that as a time sucker. Yeah. Have you read uh, one of the things that confirmed it for me, and this is for young uh, teachers too, Stephen Covey's uh, Seven Habits yeah. of Effective People. And uh, if you read that, you'll come up with sort of what the four quadrants are. And uh, I was reading that book before the television went off. and It <laughs> went off, yeah. And um, uh, not urgent, not important. Yeah. Uh, that quadrant, we were filling that really well. I mean... You sit down and and then watching TV right before you go to bed. You watch at that time. I think Johnny Carson may still have been on in '95. I don't. Maybe it was. I think it was '94. '94. Yeah. And so you just want to watch a little Johnny Carson before you went to get. Well, you're just you should be sleeping. Yeah. You know. And so those are the small things. Well, it's funny because and and I asked this question to myself too when I read that article. I'm like, what did they do without the TV? And then I immediately answered my question. They probably read, and they probably talked to each other then. <laughs> well, we, had, we, did, we do have a tradition in our family of family dinners. It yeah. should be any time we're together. And that's what we still call it. We call sure. them family dinners. And those got longer when, when you don't have TV. And I'm sure our boys were annoyed with that because they were, mm-hmm. I don't know how old, um, I don't even remember, uh, eight and five. And so now the entertainment is entirely you. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's important for kids to, to know about that stuff too, just because I remember when I was at Morris, I remember once in a while I would, I would tell them about some story about something we did with the family. And later on, a couple of kids that graduated, they, they didn't grow up in families like that or, you know, whether it was positive or negative. And they said it was nice to hear just other traditions and, and other perspectives about, you know, how people interact, how people raise children, you know, and I, right. cause I know we're more than music teachers. Right. Well, as a, as a music teacher, it's even more imperative that you have some kind of, you know, parameters on your time. And, yeah. uh, I think when the television's not available, that a little bit of time you are home just takes on a much more authentic connection with your kids. Yeah. Then, well, for us anyway, I think the television was on in the background and we were connecting. But, sure. Um, and that is for everybody. That's sort of what it is. And what, what do you do without sports? You know, that's what everyone says. What, how, well, we, we used to live in a different neighborhood and our next door neighbor had a television. So we'd go for the Super Bowl or whatever. It becomes a social event, a special event, right? Right. You know, where you go to a a local establishment somewhere and during the summer, you know, the great thing is, uh, I, I wouldn't know what to do to watch a, a Cubs game. I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, to watch a Cubs game I mean because I've always listened to it on the radio for the last 20 years and that way I can do things around the yard or whatever I don't have to sit and watch it's great I highly recommend it which almost everybody is going that way anyway, right? Yeah, it's we, all we, well. Like cable years ago, do you have cable still? I know you I, do, right? I do, but yeah, I, a lot of people it, do. It was strange to me. I, I have a student who's at Northwestern now, and he had a, his last band concert of the year last Friday, and so a couple of alums and I went to see him. And I, she's this, the girl who was talking to me about this said that she and her roommate uh, don't have a TV in their dorm room, uh, and I just found that strange. I said, "Well, what do you mean you don't have?" A, a TV in your dorm room. And she said, well, nobody really watches TV anymore anyway. Everything's on your iPad or your iPhone. Right, yeah. Yeah. That was news to me. I yeah. found that strange. You know, and on the flip side, we, we don't have cable, but we have, we have the TV and we have Netflix on there. And 
It's also cool, just uh, my wife and I spend most of the time in the documentary section, mm -hmm. and the amount of music documentaries that yeah. are on that, it's absolutely insane. And, and we're talking pop music, rock music, classical music. Um, every once in a while, you know, if, even if you go on YouTube now, you can watch the Bernstein Concerts for Young People series. Right, right, right. Uh, there's just so much stuff out there. But I get what you're saying, too, at the same time, because we can almost treat it, though, like junk food at the mm -hmm. same time like we're watching tv because it's here and this is what we do right you know as opposed to let's make a conscious effort if we are going to we get to put something in our brains let's right. pick what it is and and let's make sure it's quality yeah so. that's true now i do want to tell you guys this and you may have seen it on my feed through facebook but uh digitalconcerthall.com yeah i saw that and that is i think the greatest bargain ever and that you get to see live performances. So I just saw recently the uh, Dudamel was conducting. Oh, cool. Uh, and he did Mozart um, post-horn um, serenade, and he also did um, Mahler 1. And, oh, my gosh, there's something about seeing it live. Yeah. Um, but for people who are looking for musical resources, the the – documentaries you're talking about the mm -hmm. musical documentaries that that site is filled with those Ooh. and i don't think you can get it any other way okay and i suppose it's expensive it's probably about uh 13 a month you know you have to buy it a year at a time but with your educator id if you just uh pdf that send it to them they'll give you a substantial discount so anyway great yeah. no those are great resources and as we were you know you were talking before about letting people have access to education and mm -hmm. we said about the information. I mean, again, just going back to YouTube, I hope YouTube never goes away. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think it just will, the ads. but you just know, the ads, just yeah. the ads, just <laughs> the ads, right? But that's, that's the cool thing. Not only just for our kids that are never going to see these great artists because they're not living anymore, but also, yeah, somebody that maybe they can't afford to go to the symphony. Like you can still watch the symphony. It's not as good as being there live. We know that, but that information is still out there at least. So. Well, I just want to say thank you again for lots yeah, of pleasure. Lots, pleasure. Lot, yeah, lots of information today, and also I, I know you're going to stay very busy. But congratulations on thank your you. retirement from you. 204. Yeah, and how's, gonna, how's that going to feel when you hear the buses going through the, the neighborhood? And are you just going to hit the alarm, or we uh, no, got some got some big I have plans? No idea. <laughs> right now, it feels like summer. So okay, I think September I'll be I'll having a little it. bit of a shock. So no, I, I, part of what I'll be doing is helping people with uh, student. Uh, growth. Okay. Um, that is a huge need because we're all going to have to do it and nobody's really well prepared. Sure. Um, I'm part of the ISBE uh, advisory board. I'm trying to help them understand how to go through and pick quality assessments. And uh, the Danielson method is hitting everybody pretty hard. Mm -hmm. And those are things that I, I think I can be very helpful on. Um, so I hope people are not afraid to ask because I, I I really see those as good tools, yeah. and I think that frame of mind is what most of us don't have, you know, because it's another thing that we have to do. But since musicians, once you see how it connects, uh, learning growth models for students is what we do every day. Uh, so you just have to figure out how to put it in terms that an administrator understand. I'm pretty excited about helping people with that because most of us are going, Argh. Mm -hmm. And I think, oh, no, it's great because we do it we so do. well. Yeah, uh, We just don't write it down. So we just have to figure out how to write it down. Right. And then uh, the how we teach, 
uh, has been very, Danielson has been very transformative in my teaching to do what I said about helping the students uh, collaborate and become a greater um, take on a greater role in decision making. It's been very helpful. Um, so I, I'm I think it would be good to help people with that too. So hopefully I'll somebody will ask me to do something. Ask Chip Staley for help. That's your invitation. Well, thank you very much for for sitting down with us and and seriously for everything you've done for for education and music education. Thank you.